On this episode of Honest, Hardworking, True, we learn about pitching ideas while exercising and the best time to market kale and quinoa. And we're going to be talking to Director of Social Media at Marquette University and Adjunct Professor Tim Sigalski on his 418th consecutive day of meditation. Recorded at Keystone Click, this is Honest, Hardworking, True. All right, ad workers, we're back for another episode of Honest, Hardworking, True. And with us in the studio is Tim Sigalski, Director of Social Media at Marquette University, adjunct professor, freelance writer. What, what else is he, Mike? Uh, Renaissance man. Yeah, okay. Marathoner. So we are confirming that he is a Renaissance drinker. man. Yeah, he was just talking about how he's about to run marathons, but he can't because he's sick, so he's only doing a half. <laughs> and we'll get into more athletic of, uh, guy all around more but, of his running in beer drinking prowess later but i think we should kind of kick this off the proper way yeah with a uh, station identification for where we are again we're back at keystone click and if you'll allow us to say a few words about keystone click it helps businesses navigate the complexities of digital marketing and web design through a proven process to build brand awareness and drive customer engagement to generate a high return on investment for your company that's keystoneclick.com tim how are you doing today doing awesome it's friday yeah except for whenever you're listening to this it might not be friday it might be monday yeah it might be another year actually you yeah. know you never know when stuff <laughs> can come out <laughs> 2018 uh, welcome um tim for people that don't know you which i highly doubt because obviously you have a pretty wide grasp here of the social media world and, and connections here in milwaukee uh can you give people a little bit about your background how you kind of um uh, became director of social media adjunct professor at, at Marquette. Yeah, so I think um, it may be nine years ago today I started at Marquette. It was this week, uh, back wow. in 2008, if I'm doing my math right, nine years ago. Um, started at Marquette. Uh, prior to that, I got my degree in journalism at Marquette and uh, you know thought I'd be a journalist my whole life. I worked uh, for the Journal Sentinel that had a, uh, a publication at the time, which no longer exists, called MKE. I wrote for them. Uh, I, wrote, I worked in Madison for a while for the State Journal. Um, you know, dreams of writing for newspapers and, and magazines and working my whole, my whole career in journalism. And then uh, the recession hit, and the Journal Sentinel uh, eliminated, eliminated our department. And I had this, these fledgling skills uh, in journalism and this new thing called social media. Um, I'd been on MySpace and uh, <laughs> discovered this new thing called Twitter and occasionally even Facebook um, and, and was looking for work and didn't know what to do with those skills. And at the time, Marquette was hiring for someone who could do things in journalism and writing and media relations and try out this new thing called social media. Uh, so that was nine years ago. My first day at work, I set up a Twitter account for Marquette, not knowing where it would lead me <laughs> and certainly not thinking today uh, that um, I'd be teaching for the last six years, uh, media writing, social media analytics uh, now I, I teach a, a seminar on creativity who knew I, I never knew it would lead this way and and that social media would quite honestly blossom to this degree sure. um, I remember in 2009 when Twitter was on the front page of Time magazine I'm like well that's it social media has reached its apex <laughs> it's right. never gonna get bigger than this and uh, it, it continued to grow um, and which makes it fun and challenging and interesting to go into work every day and figure out like okay what has snapchat done today mm -hmm. uh what the hell is instagram stories doing now uh and what's what's with vr and what's with ar and how can we fit into those um 
those funnels and what should we be doing. Uh, and, uh, and I think it will continue to challenge me for the next 10 years or whenever. Do you remember who your top five is on MySpace? <laughs> is Mike one of your top five? Or I, you, get, you don't go back that far? I don't, no, we don't go back that far. Okay. It was, it was I, about, about, right out to, about the time Tim started at Marquette is when we kind of started mm-hmm. to connect. Sure. I feel like, yeah, when uh, maybe you had those screen printing t-shirts, I like discovered these on MySpace. You probably had uh, a MySpace page to market those things. Yeah. That's how I got into learning about social media. It's like, okay, how can we set up pages that... Uh, promote things, brand things, market things, and learned ourselves before doing it for institutions. Mm-hmm. So uh, kind of going back, you know, you kind of said you, you know, have the journalist background and then they said, you know, other duties as a sign, so social media. So what was that like kind of building everything out from scratch? Um, because there was, you know, today now kids kind of have classes and they pair mm-hmm. marketing with social media. So there's a baseline and, and, you know, people have used the tools, but now it's just kind of finding your footing. I mean, back then it was finding your footing. So, mm-hmm. You know, what was that process like and, you know, how did that kind of come to evolve and, mm-hmm. you know, especially with universities probably having levels of restrictions and policies, yeah. how did that all kind of come together? Yeah, the first first few years, the, the challenge really wasn't the technology or the communication side of it. The challenge was convincing other people that this wasn't a fad sure. um, and being an evangelist. And I remember my first few years, my first, like, two, three years, you know, continual imposter syndrome of, like, what am I doing here? And what is, is this a real thing? Is it a fad? Should I be doing this? Um, you know, as a journalist, uh, I didn't necessarily have, like, presentation skills. And the first time I ever used PowerPoint was when I got my new job at Marquette. And I'm like, okay, let's figure this out because I have to start giving presentations to vice presidents uh, and higher-ups that are like, what is this thing, Twitter? Who's on there? Um, and it, it was a challenge, but I learned trial by fire. Like, how do you convince people that this is a valuable thing and that we should be on it? Um, and and the big thing I learned is, like, you know, I could use my own storytelling background and storytelling experience as a journalist that, okay, go find examples of when this worked or when this went wrong and how we could do something differently and what we should be aware of. Um, and so I learned it's really not that much different than what I'd done as a journalist. I heard people's stories and told them, and now I was seeing stories, hearing them, experiencing them, and trying to translate to other people that the social media thing is a big deal. Sure. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, today, like, people by and large get that but you know as you know you might be surprised there's people who still don't quite grasp the intricacies of why this is important and how we should be tactically and strategically involved um but one thing that has changed in nine years like we have a uh, a new a newish president um i guess he's not so new anymore but uh mike lovell president Lovell, who he's on twitter and i pitched him that idea on a run and uh and i discussed it with people in her office and i think he would be really good communicating his story because he's so active and involved in the community he can take pictures at his events and share them out on twitter uh share them out on instagram and that was a sea change for us where you had it's amazing you know <laughs> leaders and right. that was a thing like we all remember when the first like ceos got on twitter and leaders got on twitter and now it's <laughs> we've seen a lot of leaders <laughs> right. maybe a little too much sometimes uh, of people using social media but now it's it's a given it's part of everyday life yeah so describe some of those kind of early successes where that sea change started to kind of happen and where people kind of started to buy in one of the big things is um again pointing to things that happen outside of your own institution um, in that, hey, these are real people. These aren't just, you know, voices on a phone that are angry at something. <clears throat> and one of the, this goes kind of way back, but I still think about this a lot, the Hudson plane crash. Um, mm-hmm. And I, 
you may remember where you were when you saw that twit pic of someone from the ferry taking that picture um, and that that was first on the scene and mm-hmm. that was not a news organization that was not a helicopter that was not anyone right and then all of a sudden news organizations picked up on that and were like oh my god this is news this is right in the front line let's share this and the idea of user-generated content the thing that other people can share, that institutions, that brands, that anyone can pick up on and be like, this is what we should be doing as well. Um, that success story translated into us. How can we you know, take student stories and amplify them? Uh, how can we crowdsource our voice so it's not just an institutional voice of God sort of thing? Who is this voice of God? <laughs> um, but it's the voice of the student. It's the voice of the alumni. And I think every brand has adopted that or should adopt that now is um, we're in this together. You know, like we're talking, it's not just me talking to you, it's all of us talking together. Um, and But I think back to, you know, those kind of like crowdsourced things like the, the Hudson as like, oh, this is a big deal. Everyone's noticing this, we should pay attention. Mm-hmm. But then again, it's a powerful tool to crowdsource information, but then how do you also harness it when it gets out of control the way it kind of is these days with uh, everyone having that sort of, hard news voice but it's not all hard news yeah yeah how do you harness that uh i i mean there's no perfect wrangle it in yeah yeah there's no perfect answer to that i think a couple of things um i'm gonna give a shout out to dr liz gross who uh she just started a new company focused on social listening and one of the things is just picking up on the early i don't know if i call them warning signs Mm -hmm. or the early inklings of like what is going on out there Mm -hmm. what's being said um and we use uh, we've used for about six years Sprout Social to monitor uh, converse, you know, like keywords, you know, just Marquette University that's not tagged in a post, but people are just talking about us. Do we need to respond to that? Should we respond to that? And if you can do it earlier, it doesn't mean that, you know, that changes everything, but it, it can. It can, you know, sort of attack antibodies, when you, mm-hmm. you know, um, before you get sick and before it's a major uh, outbreak and inflammation and that sort of thing. <laughs> um, and the other thing is just is changing the response time. You know, so um, when I first started, it was like if there was an issue, it had to go to the every level for sign off and approval. And um, that was too long. You know, it might be a whole day, 24 hours. It might be 12 hours, maybe eight hours. We don't have eight hours. People are talking about it now. What is our response? And depending on what it is, um, I kind of relate it back to the central nervous system. Uh, You know, like if you touch a hot stove, are you going to send a message to your brain that says, oh, this is hot. What should I do? Maybe I should (laughs) remove my hand. And so depending on the issue, um, you know, sometimes you just have to react quickly. And because I've been there nine years, I think I've built up some trust. I can either react on my own and respond to something or in a quick, you know, fashion with huddling with people, um, do that sort of central nervous system without going to all levels of the brain. You go to the, whatever it is, the brainstem or some yeah. some part of the nervous system that does that quick response, uh, and that's what's needed in such a fast news cycle. True. So, are there any guiding principles on campus between what not to share and to share based on um, programs and events and you know, everything else that's kind of going on on campus? Yeah. So we, we noticed early on, um, you know, because the university is so decentralized and there's so many departments and so many independent parts, and that's true of like some big businesses as well, we kind of had to sit down and write down like here's some guidelines. We didn't call them policy because we can't enforce policy throughout the university, but we wanted to share these guidelines uh, and put it in a white paper. So we did that. We still have it today. 
it was like written in, I don't know, 2010, still on my desktop, on my computer. It's, it's lived past a couple different computers. And when people um, still ask for it, um, you know, first, like, we had in-person sort of, like, road shows of, like, here's, you know, best practices. Like, there's not a necessarily an expectation of privacy, you know, for, um, you know, people who are out on campus. Like, be you know, be aware that everyone has their smartphones out and that people are sharing things. Um, and just like, this is a new reality and, and be aware and don't be an idiot. Um, I mean, it, it pretty much came down to, you know, a sort of, um, don't, don't be an idiot, be a person, use common sense. Um, you know, you can put anything in policies and guidelines, mm. but at the end of the day, it comes down to be a smart human being and don't do things online that you wouldn't do in person. Um, and I think people are, by and large, getting that today and understand that sort of thing. Not that there aren't hiccups, but it goes back to that sort of be human sort of thing. The other thing is with Sprout Social, um, we have like 70 accounts in there uh, with 30-some different users. Not our whole system across the university, but it's a lot of them. So what I can do is I can respond to things and ask other people to respond to things. Like, hey, can you answer this message about tuition or financial aid or alumni, you know, about season tickets or something, because I'm not going to be the one who answers season ticket questions because I don't know them, right. but mm-hmm. I can sort of govern that and share that with people, um, you know, through <clears throat> keywords that I'm seeing, Hey, can you, you person who works in the ticket office and athletics, can you respond to this sort of thing? Um, so those are kind of a tactical thing. And then sure. from a very high level of, um, to answer your question of like, you know, what else guides what you do? Um, I always go back to the Simon Sinek TED Talk, start with why, you know? So, like, you can focus on tactics and what and how, but at the end of the day, it's really about why are you doing this? Um, And when I look at Twitter bios or bios of some other institutions, I see a lot of facts. And, you know, we are an institution founded in this year with this many colleges and majors, um, and I don't think that's what moves people. Sure. So in our bio, I put hashtag be the difference, hashtag we are Marquette, and I try to remind myself, you know, with every post, does it reflect this mission? Does it reflect our community or what we're trying to do to be the difference? Sure. So how much of your day is spent kind of behind the dashboard monitoring versus strategizing and kind of um, coming up with, with concepts and, and kind of creative executions that, you know, you deploy? So I've kind of worked out a, I guess you'd call it a personal system over the years. Um, you may have seen some of these, like, life hack type posts on medium or someplace where it talks about don't manage your time, manage your energy. Mm -hmm. Um, and I find I'm, I'm more of a morning person and I have a lot of like creative concepts and things I can do to help, um, think big picture in the morning. So my mornings are usually around like working with other people on their strategies and my own strategies and like putting that like big idea of like what I want to do and what we want to think long term. Um, and in the afternoon when I get tired <laughs> and uh, mentally fatigued, um, that's when I'll off, often like log into a, my dashboard on Sprout and see like, what are people saying? You know, what do I need to respond to? What are some other things um, I can do? So roughly, I guess 50-50 is I'm like, you know, digging into like the nitty gritty of like, what are people actually saying and trying not to lose touch uh, with individual people on Twitter, people on Snapchat, people on Instagram. Um, and in the morning, I think more big picture strategic. Yeah, take that uh, process and apply it to something that has occurred recently or give us an example of something that you've dealt with recently. Uh, so I'm trying to, well, so, um, all right, so yesterday. <laughs> um, yesterday, uh, my boss and I, Tom um, Pinek, went to Chicago just for the morning to hear a, um, a talk on social listening and how we could apply social listening um, 
institutionally and what we might be missing. So it's something I you know have thought about and and used for a long time. But it's always good to just again hear um, big picture what what are what should we be doing? What sort of basics should we be focusing on? So that lasted basically all morning um, into the early afternoon. And <laughs> once I was tired, um, I went to I started doing what I was learned about in the morning and literally went to a specific geotagged place on Instagram mm-hmm. and started looking for people who had checked in on St. Joan of Arc Chapel on campus but not tagged Marquette to see if there is posts there that I should be sharing and using. And sure enough, I saw a ton. I saw a great picture of someone who said, his caption was just, happy to be here, him in front of our beautiful Joan of Arc Chapel. And I just said, hey, do you mind if I use this picture? And he's like, yeah, of course. And I shared that on our channels. And then I logged into our dashboard and saw that someone had shared some drone footage on campus. And so I then emailed the person who shared a couple of those pictures and said, do you have more pictures? And he sent me a whole Dropbox full of pictures mm-hmm. of, of drone footage on campus, including students on the ground experiencing the drone um, the drone uh, uh, navigation. Uh, it was Mike DeSisti from the Journal Sentinel who also teaches in the college and shared that on Facebook and shared that on Instagram and Twitter and elsewhere. So that was more of like, I can't, I can't think big picture much anymore, but I can like execute and I can just see like what's out there and what should I be paying attention to? Mm-hmm. There's always a curtain to unveil something that you haven't necessarily or wouldn't necessarily look, think to look for, uh, initially. Yeah. 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 Afternoon's a good time to just like zone out and go on Instagram <laughs> and Twitter. It's like, I'll spend a couple of, and that's, what's nice when that's your actual job where you can be like, I am going on Twitter, going through threads and that's what I do here. See, it's still imposter syndrome, isn't it? Because I, I've never stopped having the imposter thing where it's just like, I think the only person in creative who doesn't is probably like a designer because like you can see their work and effort whereas i'm a writer yeah so it's just like yeah like i'm a pretty good writer but uh, i feel like a a phony (laughs) you know and i think like that might also be the cycles of the actual work that you're doing Mm -hmm. like you should all always kind of feel a bit like an imposter not know what you're doing at the beginning of a project sure because that's the beginning of a project you should be figuring things out and you shouldn't know exactly what you want to do or you're not maximizing your creative potential Mm -hmm. um one of my favorite uh, podcasts, Radiolab, um, Janet Abramrod, like he talks about uh, gut churn. He calls it gut churn. And I've talked about this with my students. You should feel uncomfortable uh, in your edits uh, or in what you're starting to do uh, because that means that it's a new territory. If it's not new territory and you feel perfectly comfortable, something's wrong. Mm-hmm. You need to <laughs> right, right. push yourself some more. That's not a bad thing to have yeah. imposter syndrome. Good job, imposters. <laughs> So from that per- like that point, um, you know, th- this is an industry. This- these are channels that are constantly evolving um, and constantly moving. So where do you kind of go to kind of stay on top? I mean, you spoke, you went down to Chicago for a conference, but what other resources and tools do you use to kind of yeah. stay on top and you know find those nuggets of you know looking at a geo targeted place for all kinds of you know new content opportunities? Yeah. So I mean, I'm really, really, really fortunate, and I know that because I work on a college campus. <laughs> so I have um, access to the next generation of cutting edge, um, you know, social media practices. Um, but the thing is, you have to ask. You can't just assume that. You know, it's not a process of osmosis. Um, I I teach 
three classes. I am taking a class right now and I'm the old guy in the room. Uh, so like a lot of the younger people, it's a, it's a master's class, but there's still a lot of, you know, people in accelerated master's programs who are 22 mm-hmm. and I'm like 14 years older than them. Um, mm-hmm. so I, I, I've, I've done focus groups. I did two focus groups this summer on Snapchat, um, where I asked in-depth questions on why do you use Snapchat and not Facebook? Um, tell me more about that. Um, one of the things I learned, um, I asked about the comparisons between Facebook and Snapchat. So we know that there's difference in users between, you know, an 18-year-old on Snapchat and a 50-year-old on Facebook. But why? Why are they different? And why are they using Snapchat differently? So I have to ask them to tell me. Right. But And they will. They're very happy to, like, you know, say, look, this is what I'm doing. And when I'm posting something on Facebook, it's for my Aunt Susie and my grandma and my my mom and that's going to look a little differently than the you know the stupid snap i sent my best friend because i thought this netflix show was funny right um and then i ask things like you know how authentic are you on facebook versus snapchat and they'll say i'm about maybe 10 percent authentic on facebook and i was like whoa that's <laughs> you know kind of know a little bit but like putting a number <clears throat> to it um and then how authentic are you on snapchat and i get answers like 85 90 percent authentic <laughs> and i was like wow. okay now I can take these things and apply them to my own practices and also share with other people that here's what I'm learning. You should know this too. So how is that, you know, uh, dovetailed into kind of your teaching? You know, you've talked about you teach through kind of three classes. So, you know, you have this, this almost 10 years of knowledge and it's kind of social media and, you know, you have students that use it, yeah. but don't necessarily have the marketing acumen or, yeah. you know, they haven't connected the dots yet. So what's that experience been like and, you know, how you've been able to kind of apply your experience and to get them to kind of have that aha moment and have those light bulbs kind of start, you know, turning on? Yeah, I mean, I think they're, they're doing social media for personal use and doing social media for business are two very different worlds. And Absolutely. I think the business world or agency world or, or whoever sometimes, you know, makes that misconception that I have a 23-year-old and they know what to do. They don't know what to do. And I know it because they come to me and say, like, hey, I have this internship and I don't know what I should be doing and they want me to do X. Um, So one of my classes, Social Media Analytics, um, the big thing I try to get them to do is something they probably have never done before. How do you use data to drive your creative posts? And how do you use data to convince people that your creative posts and creative idea is the best idea? Um, they get it once they understand it. Like, it's like, oh, yeah, of course. Like, I want more likes on my Instagram posts. You know, I do that intuitively. I just don't have it in a spreadsheet. <laughs> sure. I don't have it in a pitch for a client to be like, well, here's why this influencer is going to help you with that campaign. Um, so once they connect those dots, it's it really works. So my role, I feel, is like connecting the generations, <laughs> like between the older ones that want, you know, the the data or they want like something that's more business-like with the younger that get the technology and then put those two together and be like, okay, once you can marry what you know in social media and apply it to the, your next client pitch when you get out here and you graduate or even in your internship, you're going to go places. You'll be great. What do you think the ratio is of data driving strategy versus strategy driving or just becoming the data like does that does that question make sense like how much data should you use <laughs> right right like yeah. should you always trust data should you always uh, look to the numbers for um, what your strategy should be yeah so i mean <laughs> i don't know if this is a phrase or not but just enough data but not more mm-hmm. um you know and there's uh there's a ben franklin um uh, principle or rule called Franklin's Gambit, where he basically said, um, "It's it's so great that men are that humans are rational because then they can rationalize any choice that they want." Right. And like so, you, data can be used very um, 
uh, to, to your own purposes to be like, I want to do this campaign and now like figure out some data to justify it. Right. Um, so, I mean, that does happen. That does go on. What I really, and I, and I share with my students, like, you know, data isn't just a, you know, a tool to be like, well, I really like this now. How do I justify it? Maybe in some cases you, that's just what you have to do. Um, but it should really be also discovery of like, you know, we've used Google trends to be like, okay, when is the peak time? to do a campaign. Mm-hmm. And that shouldn't be something that you go in. I mean, you, maybe you have a hunch, but you shouldn't be like, okay, well, I really want to do this campaign in May, but it looks like it peaks in August. So, but let's do May. Um, real one, really dumb example. I tell people like, uh, um, when do you, th- and I'll ask you, maybe this is a good, good quiz. Um, mm-hmm. When do you think quinoa is at its height in Google searches in terms of seasonality? Quin- nope. Is it is it winter like uh, New Year's resolution or something? Nailed it. Good uh, job. Oh, yeah. Thank if you. you like go to google.com slash trends if you're listening along right now and type in quinoa or, or even better type in kale um, and right. see like when it goes down and when it goes up. It absolutely the bottom drops out in December. Mm-hmm. No one cares about quinoa or kale in December. All they care about is holiday cookies and uh, treats. I think Mike's um, writing this down. <laughs> and uh, and it is insane. It goes like down, and then like there's a huge jump in January one, right? And specifically the first Sunday of the new year, because that's when like people are like, I'm gonna get my stuff together. This is gonna be the year. And Sunday morning, I'm gonna make some kale recipes and yeah. finding that. Um, so you know, if that's your brand, if like you are working on behalf of someone or you know someone who does tasty videos, when are you gonna do a tasty video on quinoa? You know, you're not gonna do it in December. Not in the fall. Not in the fall. <laughs> um, you could, but you know, you're not gonna reach that peak. So that's where like to go back and answer your question, like that's what data should be used for is sure. like really informing like. Oh, here I made a discovery through the data, um, and not every data, not all data is going to tell you that story. You know, mm. if you look up something else, you may not see that peak, and then that's that's okay. Um, but when you do find those things with the data, that's when you can combine it with the creative and figure out this is what I should do next. Sure. So then, what about um, you know from the the creative and the execution side? I mean, the the data kind of helps drive, but um, you know, what are you seeing from kids as far as kind of artistic kind of executions or, or you know, yeah. or that kind of stuff? You know, when, you know, we see tasty videos and we see you know all this kind of really kind of amazing stuff being pushed through all the, the platforms and the channels. Yeah. You know, are, are are students kind of coming up to you and asking how do I create this or you know from that perspective in a in a class or I mean I think the the creative side takes care of itself actually that's why they're in these fields advertising or PR or writing or whatever like because they want to be creative um, what I'm trying to do usually I mean I have mostly seniors is trying to retrofit the data to that mm-hmm. um, so that I'm not I'm, I'm not really worried about the creative what I'm trying to do is like unleash their creative with data um, and in my assignments like for my social media analytics class is I have different groups that compete against each other and I give them a strategy or it's like, here's your, here's your objective. And you have three stages. You have assess the problem, analyze the data and then act. And then when they act, they have to create a campaign, a creative campaign um, based on what they learned from that data. Um, So here's a fake last week. We had a fake campaign around Starbucks and I had them say, find when a peak time for Starbucks might be. That's not PSL or holiday cups because like they do this really well they really take advantage of peak times now you are a pretend agency that you were brought in to find a new peak time for starbucks and then create a creative campaign for them so the winning team 
to compete against each other and one wins, uh, created a, um, a Warm Hearts, uh, Warm Cups campaign. And if you bought their new Warm Cup blend, uh, during the week of like, I think it's um, when Google searches show that people donate are more most willing to donate food and donate to local um, like food shelters. Uh, you had a percentage of your blend donated to a local food shelter. So they, they had a really great creative campaign, and they did. And part of the assignment was to do ten posts around that. They were beautiful posts, you know, made with Canva, made with InDesign or whatever. Um, but then it was driven by that data to see like. Uh, how could this maximize that creative push? So sure. really, it's like they're already creative, but then it's like, how do you get that creative out in front of the most people and be the most effective, not just you know sit somewhere that no one sees? Mm. Um, yeah, we can get into some fun questions right after my um, um rapid fire, Mike Wisniewski. I like what you said about uh, influencing uh, some of the decision makers by exercising with them. I was thinking about, man, if I had to exercise to get anywhere in my career, this would be a problem. All right. What's your opinion of the Milwaukee community? Um, I, so I grew up in a small town, um, town of 15,000 called Beaver Dam, closer to Madison than Milwaukee. So sure. I spent most of my, like if I went to the big city, it was Madison and didn't really know Milwaukee much until I moved here for college in 2000. And... I loved it right away. Like when I, I explored Milwaukee constantly, um, I would run through the east side, through the downtown. I'd use the U.S. Bank building. Is it called the U.S. Bank building still? It changes its name all the time. Yeah, it is. It's U.S. Bank. Marquis still up there, but I think it might have changed. Oh, is it changed? Again? But for reference, for reference, for reference yeah. U.S. Bank. Building. I think okay. it was like first star, first star, and then the Wisconsin yeah. building. Yeah. And, um, yeah, no one calls it the Willis Tower. Willis Tower. <laughs> Fuck Willis. Are so, talking about Willis? I, uh, I use that as a reference to like just find my way back to campus. And so I explored Milwaukee a ton, fell in love with it. And after I graduated, I needed a break from city life. And I went and lived in Montana. Green Acres. While. Green Acres. There was, there was no pigs, but there was lots of mountain goats. Sure. And uh, bears, grizzly bears and whatnot, black mm-hmm. bears. Um, and... I, I actually also took a job at working for an airline to just get free flights and fly over the place because I'm like, I need to figure out what I should do with the rest of my life, where I should live, what I should do, what I should see. And I just fly till, to Seattle for a day to go to the public market. I'd fly to Mexico for a day because they're all free flights. So I'd just stay there for a night or for a couple hours. And that process actually taught me that I was missing my own backyard. And Milwaukee was a really great city. And there was a lot that if I just opened my eyes and again and just reappreciated it, mm-hmm. um, that's where I where I felt like I belonged and where I could really make a life. Um, so that's that's where I am today. Yeah, people are making it really easy to appreciate Milwaukee these days. Mm-hmm. That's it. <laughs> my question: deep, deep, short, and rapid. <laughs> yes. Uh, best piece of advice you've received. Um. Can it be from Buddha? Yep. Uh, <laughs> yep. I mean, maybe not, per- maybe not personally. Buddha never told me this, but uh, I've meditated for 418 days in a row using an app called Calm.com. And they have some great guided meditations. Like They call it like 7 Days of Calm, 21 Days of Calm. And the best piece of advice that I've learned from that, maybe it's Buddha or some, some Buddhist, um, said, like, you know, basically everything is temporary. Like, nothing is mm-hmm. permanent. Everything changes. Uh, so... So stop trying to hold on to things or stop trying to worry about things if, they, if they're unpleasant or pleasant. Yeah. Um, we grasp on to things when they feel good and when things are going well. 
and we want to get through things that suck. Um, but if you just like relax and realize that it's all going to go away um, soon, uh, one way or another, uh, that makes it a lot easier to get through or appreciate whatever you're doing. So that's thanks, Buddha. Yeah, I, 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 I was listening to this like meditative thing that you were kind of talking about. It was this Australian guy who basically whispers amid New Age, and he said exactly that. He's like the temporary nature of thinking. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> it is. It is temporary. That's great. All right, next question. What's your favorite big market success in social media and big market blunder in social media recently? You mean like overall? Like yeah, any, well, not just like, you know, something that a campaign that was really successful that you loved or something that was just fun to watch because it failed so miserably. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, wow. Can I talk about our country? <laughs> um, uh, wow. Um, I will try to stay away from politics. I mean, but aside uh, from the obvious. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I wrote a piece a while back for Media Shift called The Metrics of Outrage. And it just talked about how you can have a strategy and the strategy will get upended in seconds or a day or whatever. Even if, you, if you're the brand that gets affected, Pepsi, United Airlines, you know, you name it. Yeah. Um, or it trickles to everyone else. It takes over the Internet. You may have the greatest campaign that you want to launch and the Internet is roiling over something and your message gets completely lost. So I don't know if it's one specific thing, but it's just that the fact that we live in a continually outraged area. Yeah. yeah. And that's in how you handle that um, sort of thing. So, but the, the success part of that or the flip side of that is how to make people make sense of that or respond to it or not ignore it, but like what is our role in this or something. And sure. I, I will throw out another podcast um, as an example of responding to just the continual outrage society that we're in is uh, Reply All. And they have a segment called, Why is Everyone So Mad and Do I Have to Be Mad Also? Yeah. And um, <laughs> it is a great, great meta response to the current climate of social media and everything. And I think it's a testament to all, all brands. What you have to do is like, you can't just be wrapped up in your own social media strategy of what you want to do. You have to pay attention to what else is going on. If you're Tic Tac, you know, if you're um, Skittles, uh, if you're um, Penzi Spices, these are all brands you never thought would get involved in current headlines. Yeah. And they have, and they've done it, in my opinion, very well. And, um, and that's what I'd, I'd say for 2017, 2018, um, is don't ignore that side of what's going on in the world. One of the biggest things that I hate about some of the local news social media accounts is that they ask questions on Facebook or whatever that oh, you God. know what response is. You know what's going to happen. God, what do you yeah. think? What do you think of uh, what Donald Trump did about <laughs> this? It's like you know what's about to happen. Why are you doing that? Like you're asking a thoughtful question. It's not thoughtful. I I, I don't understand. I hate that. Yeah, the, the town forum that is is uh, is not becoming a uh, conducive town forum. Yeah. yeah, take those conversations elsewhere. Mm. Uh, so most people that know you uh, know you you preferred beverage of choice is a beer yeah um, mm. uh, what's your favorite beer Michelob Light no not, not you no? Not, oh, okay. not, not you <laughs> well he's a runner I just assumed right <laughs> I don't have maybe this is boring I don't have a single favorite beer um, do you have a favorite brewery I I don't have a favorite brewery but I will say a favorite style I, my favorite style is just IPA and that mm. may be boring for people maybe I should be in the sour beers now and whatever else is is the 
the the the craft beer drink du jour. Um, but I, I just I just love and maybe once my kids are a little bit older, I can get back into the more hardcore. Um, high ABV beers, but, but right now it's just like, get get home, like, you know, like, after the kids are in bed, have an IPA, yeah. and relax, and that might be kind of boring, but that's what, I, that's what I'm doing right now. Yeah, about 100 episodes ago, we uh, pondered with Annie Holshue what our favorite lawnmower beer was, and a lawnmower beer, I mean, are you familiar uh, with the term? Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah so what's yeah. your favorite shitty beer? Uh, you know, PBR, Miller High Life. Yeah, High Life, um, for sure. I got some High Life in the fridge right now, and... Um, the other cracked open just the other night because I was just thirsty and didn't really want to. I didn't want ice water. I didn't want a craft beer. I was just like Miller Highlight. Yeah, there it is. Hit the, the spot same. right now. New tagline. Yeah. Andrew Feller said he has a buddy at uh, Miller who they basically have these package defects or something that's wrong, and they need to get rid of these pallets of beers. So I'll he's take like, them. yeah, he's yeah. like, some of them are free, but he's like, yeah, uh, there's a sale on Miller High Life right now. Uh, within Miller, you can get a thirty pack for four dollars. It's just like there's got to be a limit on that. That can't be real. That got to be legal. Yeah. <laughs> well, because I know most people that work there get like two cases a week or something. Yeah. Like oh that. yeah, I'm so, sure. Yeah. But I've not been pervy to the scratch and dent sale. <laughs> well, while we figure out how to make friends with Andrew's friend, we should probably wrap things up and say thank you to Tim Sigalski. The Renaissance man, was it? Renaissance for man. For joining us, in the, even though he uh, said, no. <laughs> said, said no. Don't, no. don't no. call no. us Renaissance <laughs> man. But thank you for joining us in the studio and for a very informative conversation. Anytime. This was fun. Thanks for having me and bring some Miller High Life next time. <laughs> <laughs> Will do. Thanks, Tim. Thanks. All right. Um, Freelance writer. Oh, um, wow. It's good to keep going. Renaissance too. man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I write for Draft Magazine and other magazines. And cool. Renaissance. There we go. No. <laughs> no, don't say that? Okay. Well, it's recording now, yeah, so right. it's, it's too late. <laughs> All right. Ad workers.